Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. I'll be hosting this episode myself. I am a proven leader with over 23 years of diverse experience designing, delivering, and supporting software and technology projects. I believe in giving back to my community, and I enjoy networking and helping to grow Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Creatively, you will find me pursuing my passions of photography, podcasting, and woodworking, along with the occasional round of golf. On this episode, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Steve Armstrong to talk about leadership. Let's get right to the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast. Uh, I am your host, Aldel Deegan. Uh, today, I have with me Steve Armstrong. Steve is a speaker, educator, and consultant with 35 years as a leader, soldier, and humanitarian. So I'm really excited to talk to Steve today. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Oh, great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, as people have gotten to know me on this podcast, I always want to know about the person. I want to know who is Steve? Where did you come from? What happened? And, uh, you know, you've painted quite a career for yourself and uh, and you've done some really exciting things. And I think we really want to hear about all that stuff. So could you start uh, by letting us know sort of where you came from and what got you to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. It's uh, as I often say, my guidance counselor in high school would probably crap her pants if she ever saw what became <laughs> of me and where I, the route I took and where I ended up. So um, I was born, grew up in southern Ontario in, in a small farming village, and then we moved to the big city of Peterborough, Ontario. And and I was, uh, I'm sure, if I was born in the 2000, I'd be on dextrose doses of Ritalin as a kid. <laughs> Through, because I was just one of those boys, and uh, you know we had a good family and a good life. Grew up on around farming and agriculture as a kid, and my dad became rose from a truck driver, farmer, truck driver to CAO of a large municipality in Ontario. And, and uh, but my life was was good, but it was a bit dis. I have to be honest. I think it was a bit disconnected, a little bit disjointed, and I was. I'd say I was. I wouldn't want to say I was lost, but I was being becoming lost in that I didn't know what to do. I did okay at school, and uh, I remember my guidance counselor one time saying, "Well, if you're not going to do anything, don't do it here." <laughs> and uh, I w- loved the military. Uh, we don't have a mili- big, strong military presence in the, my family, but got involved with the cadet program and the reserves and then worked with the regular army. And I found as soon as I got out of school, I, I had purpose. I belonged someplace. I kind of jokingly say I'm glad I joined, turned right and joined the biggest gang in Canada, not another type of gang. And uh, one of the little stories I tell is – one day I could, I was failing math and trig and algebra and all those things in high school. The next, within a few months, I was calculating firing patterns for mortars to and hitting targets 4,500 meters away in, in my wow. head because I was motivated. And, and there's nothing, I got to tell you something, there's nothing better than blowing something up. Like that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I got in the military and I thrived. I was a good soldier. Better than most, uh, not as not as good as some, but better than most. I became a very good leader. I learned a lot of hard lessons along the way. I rose through the ranks as a non-commissioned officer to rank of sergeant major, in charge of 
400 people or not in charge, but are responsible for 400 people. So if you're not aware the military sergeants and non-commissioned officers are like the foremen and supervisors and the officer corps are the, his management executive. And I was, my equivalency would have been like chief foreman, I suppose, in a plant of a company of maybe 400 people. And my role there was along the lines of a chief of staff, uh, chief operating officer, making sure everything was ready to go when the boss said go, we were ready to go. And I thrived there. And at a certain point, I kind of, although I was a young man, I kind of aged out, promoted out of the jobs that I loved doing. And I started becoming a bureaucrat in the building that everybody wore the same clothes. And thought, well, you know what, I got to, despite my guidance counselor, I ended up with a bachelor's degree and I had this great career and I was just around 40 and I thought I got space and time in my life to do something interesting. So I left there and, and took all of those unbelievable, luckily, I, for some reason, I was able to translate all those skills and competencies and the language that I'd learned into language that in the civilian world that didn't scare the living Jesus out of everybody. And uh, and I then I transitioned through a short career in municipal administration, and then I joined Red Cross. And I spent another 13 years mostly doing disaster work all around the world, like again, living out of a bag most of that time until the last four or five years when I was uh, responsible for our operation, all of our operations here in Alberta, the Northwest Territories. And then in 2013, I was exhausted and wore out. Things were changing that I didn't really like how it was changing. I probably agreed with where it was going, but I wasn't completely bought into the program. And I thought, well, you know, I'm still young. Time to to see what else is out there. And then since then, I've built this career of a speaker and a consultant helping or, you know, building good organizations, healthy organizations and trying to make sure leaders and employees can be successful. That's and now it brings us to today. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's, that's brilliant and fascinating. And it's, it seems to me like um, I've heard numerous times that when, when somebody's uh, as a child, they're, they're lost and getting into trouble and stuff like that, that, and it, obviously it's not in every case, but they typically just need some focus. And, uh, you know, usually when they get sent to military school or whatever, they shape up because they, all of a sudden they have this direction and, and regimented focus again. Yeah. Well, I think to that, and it's, it's a sense of belonging. You know, you hear people like uh, Daniel Pink and Simon Simic and some of these thinkers in leadership and, you know, the the why part and why are you there and why are you doing it and what are, where do you belong? And I, th I thrived in that. And, and I did bump into times both in the military and Red Cross and other places where, you know, that old, the old school romantic, small R romantic vision of honor and, you know, decency and courage and, all that kind of stuff. And when those things started being questioned, then I started questioning my place in that organization. So as long as I could hang my hat on what we were doing, I was completely cool with it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so the, the piece that's missing from your story, from my perspective anyway, is you, you, you do all that and then you start speaking and, and leading and, and helping companies. What, what was that transition? Like, how did you go from, uh, you know, I'm now done with, with traveling all over the world and, and, you know, being a humanitarian from that perspective, and I'm going to go speak, do public speaking and, and help companies learn about leadership. How do, how do you get into that? Uh, like most of my life, it was a bit of a 
a broken path and as and, and not really a plan. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. At the end of my Red Cross career, my best before date had gone be, gone by, and I was like I mentioned earlier, I was I was tired and wore out, and I wasn't a team player. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I, I was becoming grumpy and <laughs> unhappy, and I wasn't aligned with my leadership. There's lots to that story, but the bottom line is I wasn't. I was not aligned. I accept full responsibility for that. And so it was time to go. And I had a conversation with my wife, and we knew that it was time to go. So we made a, came to terms with the organization. And I took a break. I, we took the trailer, and we traveled and did all sorts of stuff around the house. And somewhere in the fall of that year, later on, about four or five months afterwards, it was, oh, sorry, I, I had always had a vision of teaching. Like, that's sort of where I thought I would land. And I, and I did a master's degree uh, for two reasons. One was I just wanted to prove my guidance counselor wrong one more time. And I also knew I needed at least that to get into Mount Royal at the time when it was a college uh, or anywhere particularly. And so that was it. And then a friend of mine who has been very successful in the speaking business, um, happened, coincidentally, ran a school for speakers. So he called it the business of speaking school. Okay. And he, and I just around the time I was like, oh, shit, I got to get my I got to grow up here and do something with my time and my life. And I, I'd gotten into Mount Royal a little bit and this other opportunity came up. And so I worked with, his name is Hugh Culver and we'd worked together. And then he became my business coach and developed this business that, that opened up this up, all of these opportunities. And I really, like most people that running organizations, we always, there's lots of consultants around and uh, it just seemed to work out that, uh, this opportunity just kept opening up for me. And from what I thought would be a speaking business has become like a 50-50 consulting speaking business, depending on the day or the year or the month or whatever, <laughs> or COVID as the case may be. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, eh? Yeah. Uh, well, you seem like a like a pretty positive, happy guy. So I'm guessing it worked out well for you. Yeah, it did okay. There's like, I've learned lots of lessons. Somebody just asked me about it here recently and you know, I spent too much time investing. I shouldn't say that. That's probably not fair. I spent a lot of time investing in the easy part of the business, which for me was actually speaking and developing tools and blogging and getting my thoughts out there and stuff. And I didn't spend enough time on the sales part, on the business development and sales part. And, uh, there, you know, there was like I was actively and aggressively selling by waiting for the phone to ring. Uh. Right, right. Instead of getting my and and explaining to people what I do, I'm still frustrated by the conversation one time with somebody I knew quite well, and he said, "I don't really have any idea what you do, and I all I wanted to do is reach around across the table and choke him out." <laughs> but really, it was my own fault. Obviously, he knew I was a speaker, he knew I was a consultant, but that's all right. it was. And I never took the time to either tell him what I did or explain what I did, and then and I thought about it further. And then I said, I guess I never, I w wasn't even asking people for business. I was just talking to them, hoping that they would ask me to come work right. with them. <laughs> well, that's definitely one of the hardest things to do. And even, whether you're selling yourself or you're selling a product or you're selling a, a, an idea, you still have to ask for the sale at some point. And that's, I think, one of the things that people have a lot of trouble with. Yeah. Oh, I, I know for me, for sure. It's not my natural inclination, right? And I, I don't know, if, some people it is, but not. 
and I equate that even to rainforest. Like people there are brilliant. I've met some of the like most technically intellectually brilliant people I met in my life through the rainforest program, but they have this idea, but they don't have the capacity or knowledge or skills or competencies to translate it into a business. They just think, well, I have this great idea. Somebody will buy it. <laughs> nope. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's very true. Well, on the, on the topic of leadership, uh, you know, we talk about leadership quite a bit in the rainforest uh, and there's, there's some clarity to put around it because off the cuff, everybody thinks a leader is like, you know, one of the great people who have started a, a major corporation and led it to a hundred plus people or thousand plus people. And you could, you could certainly argue that uh, people like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and that are, are brilliant leaders, but there's also leadership in, they call them the little L leaders, which are, are basically just taking an idea and running with it inside of, of another group. Right. And I think that that's, that's a really important thing to understand is, you know, waiting around for everybody else to take the lead role and do something is, is sort of a futile effort because they may have different motivations or they may have a different things that they're trying to accomplish. And yet, you know, like this podcast is a good example. I mean, I, I like podcasting and I said to the rainforest, Hey, let's, we should do a podcast. And they're like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and if I just went, Oh, well, I don't want to do it. Then we wouldn't have a podcast today. So, you know, what's, what's your thoughts on the little L's uh, versus big L's? Well, we all look at people, like you said, jobs and Gates and Bezos. And as you look back through history, the Churchill's or Eisenhower's or, you know, we could all list off, a thousand people who were at the head of something great or big or large, whatever. You can have an argument whether it was great or not. Like to me, uh, leadership leadership is a tool to get something done, and it can either be for good or for evil. So, like, the, you can't tell me uh, somebody as awful and abhorrent as he was. Uh, Hitler was not a great leader because he inspired all these people to do this these terrible things, but he drove that right. Uh, whereas other people, you know, can have a different conversation. But, and so anyway, so there's these l large L leaders. But I think the one thing that most of those people did, and I would say most organizations or companies, is one of our jobs as small L leaders is to understand and create this culture where a person like Al can stand up and say, hey, I got a great idea. I want to start a podcast. And somebody says, that's a great idea. <laughs> Off you go. You know, and maybe they, maybe they put some parameters around it, but it fits into the larger objectives of the organization. And what, where small L leaders, or community leaders, grassroots leaders, where we run into problems with people that are good and we want them to be, they're high performers and we want them to be successful, is we don't create the culture that says, you know what, here you go. And when we don't create that healthy culture, we create a culture where bullies and uh, disruptive or unhealthy people start taking the back, sucking up the space in the vacuum. Eventually, all the, the, the decent people and the good people will just filter away. So this, this small L leadership 
I think, and with organizations, it's even more challenging in an organization like Rainforest because it's a grassroots and it's a community and it's not a, a, a thing with a boss at the top. Uh, and so I think in that setting, I think we have to be extra, we as a community, we need to be extra careful about creating the culture that allows leadership to step up, small L leadership, just as we would within a larger organization, but but because there's no not much structure around the rainforest, and that's what it's supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be designed that way. But we still need just enough structure to, to get that done, to allow people to step up. And uh, I, I, I'll stop here, Al. There's a thought that I have that I wouldn't mind exploring a little bit more about that. But No, that's, that's brilliant. And, and you took kind of what I said, and then you put a whole bunch of, of value around it and clarity around it, which is what you do very well, hence why you're in a, in a career that, uh, that helps out with people to understand and to grow and to become uh, better, better leaders or to become leaders. And, you know, I, I want to touch on one point that you mentioned there. You, you were talking about how, you know, we want people to, who are good at things to succeed, but there's also a key point there that when somebody's really, really good at something, turning him into a leader yeah. actually can ruin the, their, their whole uh, trail, right? Because, you know, like you take programs, I'm a, I'm a software developer and, you know, you, you take a really, really, really good programmer and put them into a leadership role and they hardly do any programming anymore because they're too busy, you know, meeting with clients and trying to put things together and make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. So I guess, I guess on that note, there's also people that have leadership qualities. Is that is that reasonable or do people have leadership qualities or, or do they learn leadership qualities? Um, so I always, I, my line about, around your story is like the world is full of failed site superintendents that used to be perfectly good carpenters. Yeah. Right? There's a guy, he's a great carpenter and all of a sudden, well, if he can put that frame, that house, well, he can run this whole subdivision project we got going here and put hundreds and hundreds of people. Let's just give them the job. Right. And, and nine times, no, that's probably not fair, but a high percentage of times that person will fail because where we as uh, supervisors, leaders, or even in an organization like Rainforest or any organization is we look at that person and say, geez, look, he's a great programmer. He's a great carpenter. He's a great salesperson. Let's put him in charge. And we don't understand that we are not just promoting that person. We are putting them in a whole new career path, right? And what happens when that programmer, in your case, in the case that you used, when that programmer ends up as a, as a team leader of programmers, one of two things happens. One, he gets frustrated. She, he, she gets frustrated and leaves. More, but more likely because they're in a place of fear. Uh, they're scared uh, because they've been put in this new position. What they default do is to become the micromanaging leader from hell because what they really understand is programming. So they go back and start nattering and picking on all the programmers about what they're doing instead of being the boss. So there's a couple of bad things that happen right away there. So where, where organizations uh, need to invest is uh, looking around and finding these the leadership people and there's all sorts of tools out there you can be myers-briggs or disc uh there's one that um uh is available through 
through people like myself called uh, Six uh, Six Geniuses of Working Geniuses. There's a new one out from Patrick Manchoni. I don't know if you're aware yeah. of Patrick and his uh, table group people, a very thoughtful leader. Um, but anyway, so there's these things. And so what we have to do is find people that has the leadership capacity and start developing that. And then when someone is on leave or on vacation or sick leave, give them a chance to become an acting temporary boss and see how they make out. Give them some projects to lead, to learn, instead of promoting them into a supervisory role and then saying, here you go, thanks very much, pat you on the back. And oh yeah, great, don't screw up or we'll fire you because you're on probation or you're no longer protected by a collective agreement. And see you later. And, and so uh, my personal belief is there are some people that have innate uh, com- capacity and competencies that make them, give them the tools that they can be a better leader faster. But I think most people have some tools. <laughs> most people know how to lead. We all have families. We all have sports teams. We all have whatever. But how can the organization support that person? To bring them up, maybe they won't be an Eisenhower or a Bezos, but they'll be a damn good team leader, manager of a department, and and that's that. Most people are quite content with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, who wants? Nobody wants to fail, and everybody deserves an opportunity. But if you're going to give them the opportunity, they they more than I don't know what the right word is. They they don't deserve it. They they are. They're, they have the right to being supported and educated and trained to take that role on. Right. And then I guess sometimes people um, have natural ability to be a good leader, but they don't want to. They're not interested in it. And uh, putting someone like that in a leadership role is they're probably going to do OK, but they're going to be miserable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and who's going to who's the next people that are going to be miserable? The people that are working for that person. Right. Yeah. You know, there's lots and lots. You, you know, you just Google it. It's I, I depending on the on where the re- information comes from. Uh, you know, Gallup, McKinsey, some of these other big organizations. Something in the neighborhood of eighty percent, seventy to eighty percent of people, when they leave a job, they're leaving a supervisor. And, and whose fault's that? Not the supervisor's <laughs> fault. It's that whoever put that person in that position. That's a really valid point. I think uh, no. <laughs> That's brilliant. And okay, so when you go into a, uh, or help an organization grow their leadership, what's what are you looking for when you enter when you first you know get contacted by them or, or somehow get connected to them? So the so it's kind of a phased approach, and at any like the way I like to work is hopefully at the end of all of this, you won't need me. <laughs> I like time bound projects. Like put yourself out of a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. If I wanted a job, I'd probably just go through the Europe portal and apply it. Let me just stay here for 20 years. But uh, so that's the first sort of approach that I would take. The first thing I would do is I spend a lot of time talking to people. And there are some tools, uh, organizational health survey uh, available. If anybody wants one, we can talk about it later, maybe, Al. Sure. Uh, but there, like I have some tools on my website that people could just use free freebies sure. that are available. Uh, but there's like uh, employee, simple employee engagement surveys uh, available out there. Uh, there's expensive ones that you can use or are valid, just the same, uh, organizational. But what I really want to get a sense of is not what the 
three out of five, four out of five, six out of five, whatever the ratings people give. I want to read the comments. <laughs> the richness is in the comments that people are saying at the bottom of those surveys. And and then what I normally do, so I spend a lot of time with the leadership team talking one-on-one. It takes hours, like almost like marriage counseling in the, in the sense, like I figure out what's going on, where the dynamic is on the team. And then I go and validate that by talking to random employees, back it up with data because a lot of people need data. Regardless of the story, they want to see data. To, so, uh, so I bring it all together. And really what it is, is, is this a healthy place to be? Uh, are, are people, uh, do people have healthy conversations, healthy conflict? Uh, are they holding people accountable? Are they clear about their objectives and their mission? Not just at the executive level, but all the way through the ranks. And then, you know, have they made it hard for people to work? <laughs> you know, I come from big bureaucratic organ. Like, trust me when I tell you, the army is a big bureaucratic organization. Unless you're at war, it's like super bureaucratic. If you're at war, it's like, get it done. Just do what you got to do. Right? Right, right. Same thing with Red Cross. If there was a, I love disasters, not for because of the impact of people, but because it gave me huge freedom to do stuff. Right. Spending money was never an objective. Like, do your job. I always said the emergency is over when an accountant showed up. <laughs> <laughs> But, but because it was simple to do your job. But at normal times, it would take a year to get a brochure approved, right? So are we making it hard for people to do their jobs? And, and the first, if I, if, you know, the way I kind of work is, I would say it's like a kind of like a 90-day kind of exercise and then six months to a year sort of thing going out. So that first part is all talking, pulling it, this information together. Finding out what's a culture. Is it a healthy place to be? Is it, is, is it at a clear, people are making good decisions. Um, is there congruence? Is there no daylight between leadership teams, members, focusing the organization? Um, and do the employees understand that? I worked, I did a project for a big company down in downtown Calgary, uh, you know, 17 floors in one of the new buildings downtown. Like this was two years ago now. And their CEO was so adamant that everyone knew what was going on in the company. But when you talk to the frontline employees, they had no idea why they were doing what they were doing, why things were happening. And this guy, this another whole story, but this guy had a like on the emotional quotient scale of maybe one to a hundred, he was like negative fifty. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I never met anybody like him in my life. Like honestly, he just like. He'd suck the energy right out of you. But he was brilliant and, and, and a tremendous businessman, but a horrible leader. And uh, so there's, the, you know, that's what I found out when I started talking to people was the, the structures were there. The system was there. made all perfect sense. But once you got a step away from the CEO, there was all these layers of noise and interference. And by the time you got to a frontline worker, he didn't know, didn't care. And that's unhealthy. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, those, the larger the organization gets, the more levels of people that have to be in the, steering the, the ship in the same direction. And they're usually not like, it's, yeah. it's really difficult because you have different personality types as you, you've been talking about all along here. And, 
and you know if some people just want to get their paycheck and go home and they don't and it's just a job and then other people are like trying to forge their career and get grow and get new new responsibilities and things like that and and you got all these different people playing in the same little pool and uh and, and it can be pretty dangerous for some Absolutely. people well I, I use you know some of the like i when i was a soldier and even when i was the red cross a private in the army does not make any money like it's a good it's an okay starting wage if you're 20 years old and all you want to do is buy a car and get drunk every once in a while like it's okay uh red cross was at the in the middle bottom middle third uh you know percentile of pay scales within the not-for-profit nobody's getting rich in an organization like red cross so how do you motivate them how do you inspire them and you know yeah you can give instructions but you know, as a, as their leader, the employees, some of the employees that they worked with um, mobility aids like bathing and healthcare aids around mobility and bathing and speds and sleeping and stuff like that. And a lot of their job was not very romantic. They weren't fighting to fight forest fires and saving lives. They were cleaning crap off of toilet seats. And as their leader, I spent more time with those guys and girls than I did with the other people. Because they were only they were making you know modest super modest paycheck, but I spent all my time there by saying, okay, this is why your job is important. You're giving dignity. You are doing this. And then as soon as we started doing that, actually, what happened was it was all free loans, but they were people were always asked if they cared to give a donation. And as soon as we started connecting people more and more with that, the donations were going up and up and up and up oh, and up. Interesting. Because the employees were empowered and the volunteers too, uh, and were empowered. They knew exactly why their work was important, which is like the bottom line. Like if you don't think your work is of value and of importance, you're not going to do a very good job or you're going to go somewhere that it will be. Right. And then once they started getting that and they started seeing me coming around and, and, and then all of a sudden their quality of work started improving. Donations started coming, you know, clients were happier. So would you say that is almost across the board with, with employees or, or people that are, are kind of at the, the front end of organizations? And the reason I ask is because um, I've worked places where, you know, they would, they would say to their employees, um, would you guys like to have a really great Christmas party uh, at the end of the year? Or would you like another $50 on your paycheck or something like that? And it's, it's, it was often a, a mix between the people that were like, well, no, I'd rather have the, the, the fun time with the company. And then there's, you know, a bunch of people that'd be like, I just want more money that I'm not interested in parties or whatever. And, and I know that that's not exactly the same as what you were just talking about, but how, how often do you think that people wanting to really understand why they're doing the job that they're doing and, and how they're contributing to the organization, would you say that's like, uh, you know, a large percentage of people or, or a small or mi middle or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of in thirds. Okay. It's probably not in thirds. I would say it's like 20, 60, 20 percentage breakout of any organization. You're going to have 20% of the people on the bottom end of the scale, low performers. That doesn't mean that they can't do the job. They're like that. I just give me the 50 bucks and get out of my friggin' hair. Shut up. I don't want to go to a stupid party, you know, whatever. 
and they're grumpy and they're miserable and they're the guys they're the guys that used to drive me nuts go, oh my gosh i'm so busy and i'm rah, rah, rah. and when they were bitching about being busy they were leaning on a water cooler or standing out back smoking a cigarette well obviously you are not that busy <laughs> and then there's the 20 percent of people who it doesn't matter what you do to them. They're excited about life. They're like the golden labs of employees, right? They're jumping around and they're tails excited. Wagging. Yeah, tails wagging. Okay, boss, let's go. What are we going to do next? And then there's this group in the middle. And, you know, it could be, it might be a third, but I would say it's more. I was probably 50 to 60% of employees. They're a little bit unsure about all this. They, they, they want a good job. Uh, they want the paycheck. They could go either way. They could get excited about it or they could slip in the other way. And, and they're the ones that we miss out when we, as, as leaders, right? And that we're not giving those people what we want. And what we end up doing is we spend too much time with that guy or girl that wanted the 50 bucks. Right. Or we spend too much time with that one or two bad employees that are problematic. And then just like um, in a school or even with our families, when we invest all of our time with somebody uh, like one of our kids who's acting up or something like that, the other kids go, oh, look where dad, look where mom's focusing on it or paying their attention, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think as an organization, what we have to do is to watch that group in the middle and invest our most of our energy and focus on the high performance, the top group. So we start drawing those people into that level of high performance that they're excited about the, the Christmas party. They're engaged by the company and they want, because if you give them just another 50 bucks, you know what? In two months later, they're going to want 50 bucks more or they're going to go. Or someone will give, give them a yeah, hundred. Or they'll go down, down the street for 50 bucks. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe that's okay. Let those people go. But, but we spend, Maybe. I think, bosses, leaders as a whole, organizing, whole spend way too much time investing in that bottom 10%, 20% people when they should be investing in the bright, smart people and working to pull the rest of the company along into that, grow that from 10 to 40%. Right on. Um, okay, so that that's a really great way to wind this podcast down. Sure. What What are a couple more gems of Steve for <laughs> company leaders. Cause I think that's a really important one. I'm, I'm thinking you probably have maybe a couple more that, that, that companies, no matter what size they are, they could maybe just, just focus on. And then I have one other question for you. <laughs> so I would say that any company uh, organization, uh, private, not for profit, uh, whatever it is, uh, if there is a leader, and no, everybody has a boss, so that's okay. So let's say the CEO or the president or the whatever. They should not be behind their desk. They should be spending 50, 60% of their time out with their employees walking. There's that old, I can't remember, there's a leadership thinker. It just escapes me off the top of my head, but leadership by walking around. And when, and that's not, not as a supervisor, right? Because your supervisor should be, the people you've hired to supervise your employees should be doing a good job. If not, then fire them. But what, one of the thing is, is this goal where I can always be, every, every day walk around and talk to somebody and just say, ask them not how they're doing, ask them what, what are you doing today? 
Do you understand where this fits into the company? You will, your eyes will probably fall out of your head. Your ears will burn and your eyes will fall out because it, it will not be what you think because <laughs> all of the communication has filtered through all of those other brains and mouths before it hit this person. And then the, the, the part that we have to do as leaders then is not to deal with it that right there, that one person. You can, might have a conversation about it or something like that, but then what you want to go is go back to the top and work your way through the system and figure out why is this message not getting down and if you remember that small and then at the same time the other hard thing that I, I have to work hard at doing as a as because my natural traits are not here is if so we're having so al you're working on the floor or you're a coder in my company and i come by and you happen to mention to me that you're i don't know do you have kids yep so one of your kids is in a soccer tournament next weekend Given, given the reality we're living in the time of year, but I need to make a note to come back to you with come next time I'm walking through the floor. I have to go, Hey Al, how was uh, your daughter's soccer tournament last weekend? And you'll tell me about that. But you know, what did I just do? He said, Oh my gosh, the CEO came through, remembered my name and remembered that Susie had a soccer tournament. Now, do you know how many freaking soccer tournaments I've heard about in my life? <laughs> 78 gazillion. And they're all the same story, but it's important to that person, right? And so that's what – so I actually make notes in my – well, we're not live camera, but here's my journal. And I say, <laughs> okay, uh, Tuesday, next Tuesday, if I'm out and about, if I see Al, I have to ask about his daughter's soccer tournament. And that's connecting people with you as a human being. Now, the next time I come around and say, hey, Al, we got this big project and, you know, we're behind the eight ball on it. And, you know, we need you to, if you can, we need you to put some overtime into it. Step up. So our, this is happening. What do you, what's your first instinct going to be? Not screw you, Armstrong. It's good. Oh, yeah. Okay. Steve remembered. Steve's a pretty good guy. I'll, I'll try my best here to help out. So it's it's a, that human very there's a la language I use called being exceedingly human, like not just walking around and saying hi. It's like learning how to be intentional about that conversation, learning how to be a really good person. <laughs> now that doesn't mean I might not have to discipline you sometime or even let you go, but it's got to be superhuman, right? It's got to be. It's about a genuine rapport, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and what happens is we get often just get busy behind our desk. We got uh, investors. We got stakeholders. We got shareholders. We've got whatever. We got whatever. And we get busy being busy and not important. Now, I know it's not always possible for every organization, but if at all possible, you should have someone to look after the that part of it as much as you can. And then you should be out on the floor. And in the case of this company I mentioned earlier, this uh, downtown company with uh, this psychopathic CEO, uh, you know what he what he needed was a C, a human CEO, right? Yeah, he needed somebody to counterbalance his what he CEO, was missing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the other way around. If you're the human being, if you're the charming kind of I remember everybody's name uh, kind of person. And, I, and and I'm the CEO, then I need a pit bull of a COO to 
like sort of the two headed monster leadership model. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that that actually segues into the the last question I wanted to ask you was um, if you're familiar with the book Traction by Gino Wickman. I've heard of it, but not read it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So he systemizes a lot of the stuff, not not quite in the way that you've been talking about it. And I think I really like your spin on it, but some of the things like the two headed monster, he was talking about that, how every company needs to have a visionary and that operational person who can look after the company and they can't be the same person. Uh, And then he also talks about some really valuable information about how to let people go and why to let people go. And he's broken it down into almost like a mathematical thing where you can actually determine whether it's the right person in the right seat. Uh, And if not, you can either put the right person into the right seat or you can take the wrong person out of the right seat and get rid of them and get the right person into the right. Anyway, uh, it, it has some flavors on the the stuff that you're talking about, but I, I thought that was uh, uh, really interesting uh, that that it tied together so so brilliantly. You know, you have some amazing uh, experiences in your life that have led you to the point where I got to tell you, if, I, if I'm leading a company, I'm going to be meeting with Steve Armstrong to fine tune my my skill set because uh, you really, really make it crystal clear and easy to understand uh, of what things can make a massive difference. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your pearls of wisdom. So it's a great pleasure, Al. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to have this conversation. And the, your questions made me think, which is always good. And sometimes a bit dangerous, but it's always good. But as we close out, I'd just like to offer to anybody that's listening, uh, if you go to Stephen, S-T-E-V-N, Armstrong, all one word, .ca slash L-I-B-I. I'll set up a page where people can access some information about about me, about my my organization, uh, but also there you can download a copy of my book, a uh, PDF copy of my book called uh, You Can't Lead From Behind. It's kind of a, it's only 100 pages. It's not a big deal, but it's the only book I ever wrote and my mom's super proud of it. So, uh, <laughs> and there's some, it, go, it's a, it goes on a, a story of a personal assessment and then, Yep. some tips on on uh, what you can do about it about each there's uh, each section of the book that gives you some practical tips so people are welcome to it if they want to be a help okay. I'm always help, welcome to open to having a conversation with anybody if even if they just want to bounce an idea all right thanks Steve thank you so much for yeah. for being on the show and uh, I, I really look forward to having some further conversations with you Yeah, my pleasure, Al. All the best. Great. And everyone, thank you for listening. Tune in next week for our next episode of the Leaders, Innovators and Big Ideas podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Community Now Magazine. Engage, inspire, educate together. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, 
send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>